your it's your girl april oil and you are tuned into true crime and cheese man let's get it <laughs> what's good gang what's poppin what's cracking <laughs> It's your girl April. Welcome to another episode of True Crime and Cheese Man. It's been a minute, but you know, we're getting back into the swing of things, getting into our groove, getting our groove back. Just say hashtag April gets her groove back. Um yeah. <laughs> so I've I've been seeing people have been downloading the older episodes, so I thank you for your continued support. Um I'm thankful for everybody who's been rocking with me, you know, pushing me, motivating me to continue this. Um, It means more to me than you know. And yeah, (laughs) it has been a rough couple of months just like reflecting and, um, you know, just trying to figure out next steps in life and uh, i don't know it turned into i'm gonna i'm gonna do it next week and then next week turned into next month and then next month turned into month after that and it was just you know but at some point i gotta do what i gotta do so i'm here doing what i gotta do it's a beautiful day in nyc and beautiful enough that um i'm gonna tell you a story today you may have heard it you may have not but you didn't hear me talk about it so we will be going over the weepy voiced killer okay um gonna add some clips in here because you know shit gets real weird as weird as it sounds is as weird as it as it is um so buckle that ass in (laughs) and we're gonna get started all right i'm taking y'all back 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 to the 80s right it was New Year's Eve of 1980 when the weepy voice killer made his very first attack. 20-year-old Karen Potak, a University of Stevens Point student, was attending a nightclub with several friends. As the nightclub was closing at 1 a.m., her friends noticed that Karen was nowhere to be found. She had already left and was walking the short distance back home. As she strolled down the street near Pierce Butler Road and Syndicate Avenue in St. Paul, she was ambushed. She was bludgeoned across the head with a tire iron before being left for dead under the winter sky. After the attack, local police received a phone call at approximately 3 a.m. As his voice cracked with emotion, he directed police to the crime scene. There's a hurt girl here, he wailed before abruptly hanging up the phone. Let me let me pause for a minute because I don't feel like that's how it sounded. I'm going to play a clip for you guys. Uh, you know, it's very weird, but... I just wanted to, that was like my little tester, like an example of what it sounded like. Weird and cringy as fuck. Um, (laughs) When police and paramedics arrived on the scene, they were horrified by the brutality of the attacker. The beating was so violent that it exposed Karen's brain. Like, you gotta be kidding me. Miraculously, she survived the attack, but was left without her memory. The next victim, unfortunately, wouldn't be so lucky. On the 3rd of June, 1981, a group of teenage boys stumbled across a gruesome scene as they were walking through a wooded area north of Superior and Oneida Streets near Interstate 35E, they found a body. 
The body would be identified as 18-year-old Kimberly Compton from Pepin. She had been stabbed 61 times, mainly on the chest, with an ice pick. Furthermore, she was strangled with a shoelace. After her murder, police received another phone call, much similar to the phone call they received um, after the first attack. The man on the line said, God damn, will you find me? I just stabbed somebody with an ice pick. I can't stop myself. I keep killing somebody. Police were successful in tracing the phone call to a payphone at a bar across the street from the bus depot at 9th and St. Peter Street, but when they arrived, there was nobody there. Two days after the discovery of Kimberly's body, the man called 911 once again. He told officers he hadn't meant to kill the girl and that he would turn himself in, but he didn't because he's a jackass. Um, <laughs> instead, he called police and told them, I'll try not to kill anybody else, adding that he, quote, couldn't help it. I don't know why I stabbed her. I'm so upset about it. Despite the fact that the killer had by now left multiple phone calls, police still weren't able to identify him. On July 21st, 1982, 33-year-old Kathleen Greening from St. Paul was scheduled to go on a vacation to Mackinac Island with her best friend, Carol Kellogg. On the morning they were scheduled to leave, Kellogg had planned to drive to Greening's home for breakfast before they departed. When Kellogg arrived at her friend's house, she knocked on the front door. When nobody answered, she let herself in. The door was unlocked, so she called out to Greening. But there was no reply, so she started to search room by room. She got to the bathroom and noticed that the light was on with the door partially closed. Kellogg pushed open the door and discovered exactly why her best friend wasn't replying when she called her name. Greening's naked body was face up in the water with her head under the tap and her knees bent towards the front of the tub. Initially, police ruled her death as an accident. As a matter of fact, those who didn't buy the accidental drowning theory pointed their finger at Greening's estranged husband. It wouldn't be until years later that her death would also be um, attributed to the weepy voice killer. Even in a general sense, um, if you didn't think that it was the weepy voice killer, wh whatever. Like, I need to know who came up with the accidental drowning like what was your theory behind that i'm i'm in, i'm intrigued to know because i feel like unless she i, I don't know what how how somebody somebody tell me that slide in my dms and let me know let me know what you think i don't know or maybe i'm just dumb i don't know or can figure out in my brain how you accidentally drown in a bathtub unless you're um inebriated and like really, really um, drunk or high or, you know, just not in the right headspace. How, like, how does that happen? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Tell me. So, moving along. <laughs> On August 5th, 1982, Simmons had been at the Hexagon Bar where she met her killer when she offered him a cigarette. Simmons told a waitress that the man was going to give her a ride home. She was found dead the morning after by a newspaper carrier walking along the Mississippi River near 29th Street. She had been stabbed to death. Once again, the killer called police and said, please don't talk, just listen. I'm sorry I killed that girl. I stabbed her 40 times. Kimberly Compton was the first one over in St. Paul. Now, here's the thing. I had listened to... Um, 
the 911 calls from this case, well, from the, you know, weepy voice killer. And it's very weird. I ha- I'm going to play it in a second. Um, yeah, we're all going to pretty much think the same thing. Like, yo, this dude is mental. So here it goes. Player emergency. Please don't talk to this person. I'm sorry, I killed that girl. I stabbed her 40 times. Kimberly Compton was the first one over Facebook. I don't know what you're about to ask me. I'm going to kill myself, I think. Where are you? This girl dies with a red shirt on. It's me. I killed both immediately hearing that i was like you are not this is somebody that is um disturbed this is somebody that needs help so this is because you know i watch a lot of criminal minds so i'm pretty much an expert now duh um this is somebody who is pleading to be caught um because they cannot control the compulsion to kill you know thanks dr reed for for you know giving me that knowledge you know on a fake tv (laughs) but but still the message is still the same but enough of my rambling back to the story (laughs) the first person that police wanted to speak to in relation to the murder was the man that simons had met at the bar the man who had supposedly given her a ride home maybe he knew something about her murder or maybe he was the murderer Witnesses were able to provide police with a description. He was described as being around 40 years old, 6 feet tall, and 185 pounds. The witnesses said he had a dark complexion and receding black hair. As police were attempting to track this man down, he attacked his final victim. 19-year-old Denise Williams from Minneapolis was working the streets when she was approached by the still unidentified man, who asked for her services. The duo arranged the price and Williams hopped into his car. After the man turned onto a dead end road, Williams knew that something was wrong and that she was in danger. Before she even had a chance to react, he lunged at her with a screwdriver, stabbing her a total of 15 times. She successfully reached for a glass bottle that was sitting in the footwell and smashed her attacker over the face before fleeing from his car. This move saved her life. Like, a hundred percent no doubt about it and when i read that i was like yes girl yes you go ahead and and fight to survive because really i can't even imagine like being in a in a situation like that thank god i haven't had to experience that but like I, i would like to feel like i would you know try to fight as much as i can but yes to this this young lady Yes, girl, you go ahead and fight. Be his ass. (laughs) When the man went back home to his apartment, he noticed that the wound on his face was severe and he needed to seek out medical attention. So when he called the St. Paul Fire Department asking for assistance, the department noticed the caller had um, oral similarities to the weepy voice killer phone call. So they were like, dang. The man was identified as 37-year-old Paul Michael Stefani. He grew up in Austin, Minnesota and moved to St. Paul in the 60s where he worked as a hospital janitor and a shipping clerk. He unloaded trucks at a steel mill and a tool company. He later said that he kept losing jobs and blamed the epilepsy that he had suffered on his old job. He was angry and returned to the area around the factory. 
that's where he saw Karen Potag. He said, quote, when I picked her up, she had no jacket and I thought I'd take her for a cup of coffee. He confessed, I just wanted to warm her up and my mind snapped or something. Boy, take accountability for your actions. Stefani was soon apprehended and was charged with attempted second degree assault. He was found guilty of the murder of Barbara Simmons, but due to lack of evidence, he couldn't be tied to the other murders. Lieutenant Joe Corcoran of the St. Paul Police Department said that they never had quite enough evidence to get him charged. It's just so unfortunate when you know somebody did something, but you don't have enough evidence to charge them. That's like just, I don't know, it's ridiculous. However, in 1997, he confessed to the murder of Kim Compton after finding out that he had cancer and had less than a year to live. This motherfucker said, quote, I'd rather go to the grave knowing this is all taken care of and off my chest. Oh yeah, bitch. Oh yeah. <laughs> Fuck. He said, to this day, I can't believe it. I wake up in the morning thinking and hoping I'm dreaming all this. But then I say, no, Paul, you're still in jail. I don't know what to do except say I wish I could turn back the clock. You know what? Okay, Paul, whatever you say. (laughs) He said that she had just stepped off a bus in St. Paul and walked to Mickey's Diner where he was having coffee. He said, quote, we started talking and I told her I'd show her around town. I thought I'd drive by the river and maybe we'd see the Delta Queen or have a picnic. But in 15 minutes, she was dead. Paul. Paul. What are you what are you even talking about? So what happened in 15 minutes or like don't make it sound like oh all of a sudden 15 minutes after she was dead. Sir, sir. He also confessed to the murders of Barbara Simmons and Kathy Greening. I'm not laughing at the situation. I'm laughing because he's dumb. While he was found guilty of the murder of Simons, he never actually confessed. He had never even been considered a suspect in the death of Greening. He never made a phone call to police following that murder. Investigators announced that during his confession, he was able to provide details about Greening and her house that only the killer would have known. Moreover, investigators also found the name Paul S. in Greening's address book, which contained his phone number. So it's like they didn't really have like concrete evidence, but you know, signs kind of pointed to him. The year after he confessed, he died at the Oak Park Heights Maximum Security Prison. And that is the story of the Weepy Voice Killer. Isn't it crazy that, like, just to think, what, maybe, like, 20 years, no, 30 years ago, people were bugging the fuck out. Like, I just, it seems like there was so much shit going on in the 70s, 80s, 90s, all these killings, everything. And now we're in a an age or a generation where we're kind of reconsumed by true crime and murder and everything that just used to happen before is kind of coming to the surface again and more people are finding out. But yo, people were bugging the fuck out. <laughs> they were truly bugging. So um, we're gonna we're gonna call this season two. <laughs> and this season we're gonna do a whole lot of true crime mysteries murders um whodunits we'll have a lot more minis um a lot a lot of guests a lot of just everything we're gonna have a good time um put our pedal to the metal and just 
keep this thing going um again i want to thank everybody who's been holding it down who's been supporting me who's been pushing me um it's been a long road (laughs) but we're here and um yeah so stay tuned um i think you guys are gonna like a lot of the stuff that's gonna drop um i don't i don't know what else to say (laughs) let me know your thoughts um follow me on instagram april.selena if you want to send an email be a little old school you know what i'm saying don't put asl in there because that's that's too old school but true crime and cheese man gmail.com and yeah we're gonna get a lot of true crime a lot of cheese man get this party going so i'll talk to you guys later bye